This episode is going to discuss the central mystery question of Twin Peaks, uh, who killed Laura Palmer as far as we know in the pilot. So basically just the evidence, the clues that we gather here, going to organize those together. Also talk about the structure of the show, uh, of this pilot, as a TV episode. And then uh, go through the scenes in the episode uh, organized by the Laura storylines. So just the scenes that involve that investigation and her background and uh, talking about each scene in turn that way, rather than just go through the whole episode kind of point by point, as many podcasts do. One thing I do want to mention at this outset, because I meant to mention it in the first episode of this mini-series on the pilot, and I'll do that for most other uh, episodes of the show, is what's going on on my other podcasts. So just to let you know about that, uh, Lost in the Movies, my main podcast, publishes uh, every other week. I've got an episode on the uh, new Denny Villeneuve adaptation of Dune coming out this coming week. It may be a conversation with another film commentator, Max Clark, but uh, we'll see. It may just be my uh, my own review of it, probably so. I'll probably have a conversation with him on another film in the coming months. And then also, I just published uh, a conversation we had a few years ago on Blade Runner 2049 on that podcast as well. So doing a little bit of a Denny Villeneuve series, covered Arrival a couple weeks ago. So that's what's going on on uh, Lost in the Movies podcast. And my Twin Peaks Cinema and uh, Left of the Movies feeds haven't... Uh, well, they've the Twin Peaks Cinema one has opened up, but I haven't put up uh, October's episode yet. So you can check out my Twin Peaks Cinema coverage of uh, episode, films by episode directors, including Mark Frost himself, uh, and also Tim Hunter, who did River's Edge. There's a whole episode devoted to that, and the other episodes are all capsules. Uh, just three to four minutes on uh, one film by each of the directors who directed an episode of Twin Peaks over those first two seasons, and uh, talking about the connections between those episodes and the feature film in questions. So that's a lot of fun. That, of course, is for people who've seen the whole series of Twin Peaks. So if you're a new viewer, stay away from that for now, but uh, check it out when you've seen all of Twin Peaks. Okay, on with this episode. Who killed Laura Palmer? We're going to go over the new clues that are presented. In this episode, they're all new clues. So we're just going to talk about everything that we find out, which is a lot in this episode. First of all, the body washes up on shore, wrapped in plastic. We don't have any particular significance to that yet. We just know that it's much an unusual way of kind of packaging your victim. We also learn that the mother and father expected to be her to be home. So she was out for some reason when she wasn't supposed to be. So if she was taken she was either taken from the home or she snuck out and of course we learn later in the pilot that she snuck out this fact and the first fact are introduced to us before the cops but for most of this episode the clues we discover will be through the cops and the fbi uh, they'll be there discovering it right alongside us we're not given too much information that the detectives aren't privy to we learn that the boyfriend of laura palmer is cheating on her uh, this is one thing that the cops never actually find out in this episode. Although it seems like uh, Cooper kind of suspects it when he says you didn't love her anyways. We learn that Sarah saw her coming home from Bobby's that night that she died uh, and and going upstairs. That, again, ties into the idea that they expected her to be home and somehow she got out of the house, and that's part of the mystery, it seems, at first. The phone rang at an uncertain time. Somebody was calling her, trying to reach her there. We learn that a second girl is missing. She shows up catatonic, physically and sexually assaulted in the woods. So this tells us more about where Laura died, how she probably died by proxy, by seeing this other character. We're getting a sense of what she probably went through. And this is sort of introduced to us before the cops find out, but then, of course, it leads them to the crime scene. And uh, Laura's connection at the end of this episode still remains kind of enigmatic, although we do find out through the, the magazine, that they're connected. We find out Laura was secretly seeing a shrink, so she had some sort of troubles that she uh, didn't want her parents to know about. Cooper finds the letter under Laura's fingernail, the R, which connects him to the other case, lets him know that a serial killer uh, was responsible for her death, uh, most likely, in an abandoned train car in the woods, so now we know where she died, and the, the circumstances of her death is very bloody, and it was in this abandoned spot, so... Somebody presumably took her out there. A video of a picnic taken by James. That's a clue that comes in. It's resolved within the episode because we find out that James is the one who took it. 
that so that is one clue that actually is not still a mystery at the end of the episode. Uh, its significance is clear. Uh, through the diary, we find out that she was nervous about meeting Jay tonight. This is not exactly resolved in the episode, although a lot is pointing us toward James because we know that she went out and met him that night, according to him. And uh, the diary also reveals that there's a safety deposit box she has because they find that key. And that clue is resolved within the episode because they go to the safety deposit box and see what's in it. But it does lead to more. The diary also reveals that she had a cocaine habit, which is then further confirmed by the safety deposit box. In the train car, we see the hammer and the bloody towels. We also see the half heart and uh, fire walk with me note on a mound of dirt. So that introduces us to the fact that there's another half of the necklace out there, which is immediately resolved when we see it in James's hands. But then the new question arises, wait, why does he have this if the other half is there? Did he, is he somehow, is this related to her death? And at least according to him at the end of the episode, it's, it's just because they were lovers. It's not because he was, uh, you know, doing anything uh, untoward, basically. And uh, in the safety deposit box, we see $10,000 with the cocaine. So now we're getting a sense that maybe she was into this stuff pretty deep. It's not just that she had like a teenage habit, but a lot more was going on there. We also see the Flesh World magazine. That becomes a major clue that connects her to Renette and also implies some sort of connection to Leo because we're seeing his truck in that picture. And uh, the Teresa Banks uh, anecdote that Cooper gives about the other girl who was murdered on the other side of the state, uh, that's a major clue that we've already gotten hinted at with the letter on the fingernail, but now we're getting confirmation, okay, this appears to be a serial killer. We're also getting a clue about Bobby saying that he killed someone uh, through Laura, through James. James says that Laura's heard that, you know, it's a sort of a game of telephone, so we don't know exactly what happened, but that seems ominous. You know, what was she involved with, that her boyfriend may have killed somebody? And we also finally learn, as sort of our final clues of the episode, that Laura was really distraught on that night when she saw James. She was erratic. She looked like she was on something. She ran off into the woods at Sparkwood in 21 after making him take her home. So it's made clear by this point, and it's been made clear since Cooper came to town, Laura's not merely a passive victim of somebody. She was involved with something that probably relates to her death. So there's a, this is got that type of mystery where you don't just find out somebody killed a random person. And the fact that it's a serial killer makes us think maybe that's all it is. But they're leading us to believe at this point that she was killed because she was in something. That certainly seems to be James's impression. So here are the separate parts of the investigation. Let's look at them as not individual clues now, but as little subplots building within this larger investigation. Bobby. We know that he's cheating on her. We know he hates James. We know Mike seems like an asshole too. Of course, Cooper poo-poos the idea that he's the killer, says he didn't do it. So that's, you know, Cooper's authority on this, but there's certainly a lot going on here to make us think that uh, Bobby might be responsible for Laura's death. The Renette part of the investigation shows us that clearly this was a sexual assault, if on her, probably on Laura too. So this isn't like just a murder for money or a random striking out or some sort of anger there's like a real act of brutal violence in this, as we see in the physical aspect as well in the crime scene. The crime scene part of the investigation also tells us that, uh, or at least suggests, there's something ritualistic about this killing, like a little mound, something on the mound, objects kind of displayed. Uh, it makes us think that there's, there's, uh, the, you know, this this wasn't just somebody lashing out and killing someone randomly. This was like some sort of event. And what was Laura involved with that there was this type of event going on? The criminal world aspect of the investigation is opening up when we see that Laura was involved in underage sex work and also possibly drug dealing, given the amount of money that's there with the cocaine as well as drug use. So she was involved in some sort of criminal element within Twin Peaks in one way or another. Uh, clearly they were using her. Um, what was the extent of her kind of involvement was she just uh sort of taken along for a ride was she an active participant in in the crime scene of twin peaks uh the criminal world i mean to say we we don't really know yet the serial killer part of the investigation is suggesting that 
you know, well, suggesting a few different things and some contradictory things to the other information we get, which embeds Laura much more closely in the ecosystem of the town. This is saying, well, there was a killer across, there was a killing across the state and the other side of the state. What is this an unconnected killing spree? And does that mean that it's not a local killer? Cooper doesn't seem prepared to say that. He says the killer could be in this room, you know, so he's emphasizing the fact he, he seems to think the killer comes from this town, even though they killed someone else far away. The James part of the investigation is really one of the main focuses of this episode. For a long time, he is made to seem sort of suspicious. And uh, why does he have these things? Why do we keep cutting to him? What is his secret? What's he hiding? He offers a fairly plausible account of what happened that night. It's pretty detailed. And Cooper seems to think it's unlikely that he is uh, the killer. He and Donna also have their own questions. So, you know, this is almost setting up the idea that they too are investigating Laura's death. Now, with all of that said, though, James apparently was the last person to see Laura alive. Is he leaving out part of the information? That seems like a possibility, too. You know, he is her last connection, basically, before she departed for that train car in the woods. So gathering those clues together, let's coalesce all of it and look at the big picture. The basic takeaway is we know that Laura had a secret life involving sex and drugs. She had two boyfriends, one of whom was unfaithful as well as she was, and she was killed in a bloody and probably sexual manner, and this crime was part of a larger pattern spanning the state. In short, she was a troubled young woman embedded in crime networks and the victim of a possibly occultist serial killer. We don't know if all three aspects are related. Now, as far as the overall structure goes, even if this works as sort of an immersive art film experience, it also does work as a TV launch, setting up numerous characters and storylines without closing almost any of them out. If Lynch is responsible for the feel, it's hard not to see Frost as responsible for the structure, although Lynch is underrated as a writer. Uh, but there's a real clockwork sense to how the story unfolds. It's divided into day and night. Uh, that's a template established here where about half of the episode, a little more than half, takes place in the daytime, and then we switch to the dark. And that those have sort of evoked different moods, but also different storytelling modes, different kind of narratives take place given the time of day. Uh, the world creation element comes first before we're introduced to Lara, or at least the atmosphere element of world creation, meaning, you know, we don't know much about this town, but we're getting a sense of it right away, uh, who these, these people, this place, before we even have the murder mystery. Um, in my analysis, I tend to point out, okay, if there's three elements to this, Laura, Cooper, and the town, Laura is the first one that's really introduced in earnest. And that's fair enough, but we are getting hints of the town even as early as uh, the opening credits, you know. We do only get a sense of who these people are once Laura is able to define them. That's true. Even Pete and Catherine seem kind of cryptic before they have something to react to. The intro shows us this world existed before Lara, but that it kind of lacks definition. And uh, here are the commercial breaks throughout the episode, worth pointing out, because I think they break up the structure nicely. Uh, the first commercial break occurs between Sarah freaking out on the phone, and then we go to the Double R Diner. And the significance of that, I think, is we've spent this entire first segment of the show before we have any break just watching the unfolding of... Uh, you know, the Laura's death, the realization that she's dead, spreading until it finally reaches her parents, you know, from somebody seeing an unknown body, then identifying, cops identifying it as Laura, then trying, the parents trying to find her and all of that. It separates that from the next scene, which is uh, beginning to show us non-Laura scenes, even though, of course, they're still kind of related to her, like with Bobby and Shelley, with Donna and James walking through the hallway, you know, this, this second part of the show, uh, gives us a little more of a broader sense of the town. The next commercial break comes between the homecoming picture in the school and then the slightly different picture on the counter at the Palmer house as Sarah is crying. So I think the significance of that is we've finished this journey toward the revelation of Laura's death. And now we're slowly starting to begin the real investigation as the cops ask Sarah questions at her house. 
So there's a drama beginning, not just a situation. The third commercial break occurs between Cooper finding the letter and Donna visiting Ed. Uh, this allows them to break up the whole Cooper, you know, the, the or to put a punctuation mark on the introduction of Cooper. Because he, once he's introduced in that car, he's in every scene until the commercial break. Now we can go back and look at some of the other townspeople and remind ourselves, oh yeah, it's not just about Cooper, it's about the whole town. We see that with Donna visiting Ed. The fourth commercial break comes between uh, Cooper releasing Bobby and then Audrey at Julie's desk. And that's just sort of a tonal shift in a way. I don't think there's more dramatic significance. The most dramatically significant commercial breaks occur early in the pilot. The fifth commercial break comes between James with the necklace and Johnny bashing his head against the wall. The sixth break occurs between Cooper saying these crimes occurred at night and the cut to the traffic light. And then after, and then the commercial break and then it follows with Doc talking to Eileen. So that's, of course, an effective punctuation point. And then we're into like a domestic space, our first real move into it since the early scenes at the Palmer House. So much of these scenes in between have been in public spaces, the school, the hospital, the sheriff's station. And now we're kind of moving into the private homes again, now that it's nighttime and and the overarching framework of the of the investigation have been established. And the seventh and final commercial break occurs between the police jeep riding past a turnoff, and we cut back and come back, and Cooper and Harry are riding along the trees and say we lost them. Now, already just in the description of commercial breaks, you can kind of see what I'm about to point to, which I think is one of the most fundamental structures of the episode. It's that there's three story sections, essentially. Obviously, there's little asides and scenes throughout with different characters that don't necessarily tie into this, but basically our journey through the narrative is structured in three sequences, one morning, one in the afternoon, and one at night. The morning sequence is Laura is dead. It's all about finding her body, spreading the news through town, and trying to figure out what the hell happened with just, you know, the cops there. The second story section is the afternoon when Cooper arrives. He starts to dominate the narrative. It's all about this FBI investigation. It's about finding out, starting to peel back the layers for the first real time. We don't get any real sense of this with the cops. They find a few pieces of evidence, but they don't know what to do with them. They can't even open the diary without Cooper there. And uh, in this section, suddenly we're getting a sense, okay, there's more of a story here about who Lara was, not just something that happened to her, but she was leading this secret life. And the FBI is is kind of at the charge of that. The third story section is night, and that's James and Donna getting together. If you notice, after Cooper gives his speech at the town meeting, that's kind of it for like Cooper investigating Laura's many sides and, and, and getting introduced to the Twin Peaks townspeople. From that point on, he almost kind of takes a back seat, and it becomes more like Donna's narrative as she goes to seek James in the woods, and Cooper and Truman just kind of tag along and follow them. Note that the first act proceeds like ripples from a pond, starting with Laura and moving outward to the police, family, and friends in the community. They avoid saying her name and the fact that she's dead until the principal informs the whole school. So the words, you know, Laura Palmer has died, I don't think are actually spoken until his uh, intercom announcement. Uh, the emphasis is also throughout this whole sequence, it's on death rather than murder. They're not really fixated on the fact that she was killed, they're fixated on the fact that she's dead, that they've lost this person, and that's kind of the power of it. As the episode moves along, of course, the focus of the pilot overall, I think, especially because of that middle section, is the question of who killed Laura Palmer. To summarize the central story, a girl is murdered and an FBI agent comes to town to investigate. But to dig a little deeper into that, the story is a young man finds himself with a suspicious memento of his recently deceased secret girlfriend, and he meets up with her best friend in the woods to share secrets and grief and discover that they're falling in love. Because the only real arc in this episode, the only thing that reaches an actual conclusion, is James and Donna coming together. It provides what little catharsis we get in an episode that's more about an open wound rather than any healing. To the extent that there are secondary stars in the episode after Cooper and Harry, they are definitely Donna and James. Bobby, as a villainous figure, is perhaps the third most important plot-wise. Now, moving beyond that central question of who killed Laura Palmer, we're going to look at the individual scenes broken down by the different plots. And uh, the Laura story is the first overarching section. And I say Laura story distinguishing it from who killed Laura Palmer because I do think we're not just looking at the aspect of a murder. We're also looking at her life. And yes, that plays out in her murder, but it, it has its own, you know, it, it works both ways. The murder is also an excuse to tell us about her life and who she was, just as 
who she was and you know that 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 all points back to the murder so first of all focus strictly on the murder we have this the opening scene with the black dogs and josie in the mirror the black dog statue i mean josie in the mirror pete going fishing and finding the body and uh you know Catherine reading her newspaper in the house this is the scene that establishes of course what the whole show what the whole pilot i mean will be about Second scene involving the murder is Lucy. She's at, she's the receptionist at the sheriff's station. She transfers Pete's call to Truman. It's worth noting this is the first really funny scene we get where she's giving way too much information. The sheriff is just kind of patiently listening to it's a brown phone near the table, near this, near that, you know, as if he's never used this phone before in this in this station. So if Josie introduces a sense of mystery, Lucy introduces a sense of comedy to the story, even as it's in the midst of this murder investigation. Uh, then we get Josie and Catherine watching Andy, Truman, Pete, and Doc uh, turn over the body. Andy's taking pictures and crying, so we're seeing this sort of quirky side of the sheriff, uh, the sheriff's department. And they flip over the body and then cover Laura and you know say her name aloud. And this is our introduce, introduction to Laura as a character, as the victim at the centerpiece of this mystery. They do a good job in this scene, too, with the tide having gone down. It lends it a sense of verisimilitude, like time has passed in the time it took them to get to this crime scene. The The next scene that's really solely focused on the murder and nothing else is Coop arriving in town, uh, dictating to Diane what he's been up to. You know, he's only there because of this this crime. And there's really no other like sort of character subplots or anything that are being dealt with here other than just setting up Cooper as a character. But that's more of a personality thing than a narrative thing. It's funny because he comes pretty much out of nowhere, literally have no reason to expect him at this moment, narratively or tonally. It's a huge shift in the story. And the next scene, Cooper and Truman meet at the hospital. Cooper tells him that the FBI is in charge. And we get a nice sense of his personality in the scene. We're pivoting from how he's hard-ass about you know, his authority, but then suddenly he's like a, almost a childlike enthusiast about trees, and then he's back to being professional, concentrated on the autopsy. This says it all about his character, his different aspects, telling us that this guy is not just going to be a conventional detective, but he is going to be a good conventional detective as well. Then Cooper finds the letter under Laura's fingernail. He tells Diane to give it to Albert, not Sam. This is the first overtly strange bit of the Cooper investigation. He seemed like a sort of a quirky character till now, but nothing he's done other than just checking the nails under Renette has uh, has really like suggested much, you know, that, that that there's anything really strange about this actual murder. The next scene that uh, directly involves the murder is Andy calling Lucy from the train car. She calls him sweetie, so we're getting a little bit of an indication. We get another one later that uh, they're close. You know, she says later in the episode that Andy's been having too much caffeine lately, so they seem to be pretty attached. And then finally, we have Cooper and Truman investigating the crime scene, the train car, finding the half-iron firewalk with me, as I mentioned before. And that, I would say, is the last episode in, or the last moment in the episode, the last scene that is, like, not about the parts of Laura's personality that may have led up to her death, but actually about her death itself, the circumstances of her murder. From then on, we're focusing more on Laura, the character. So another aspect of Laura's story that we get a look at in this is the Palmer family life. This is Sarah and Leland Palmer, her parents. Sarah's, we see Sarah smoking in the house. She calls out to Laura. She looks upstairs. Uh, we see the shot of the bedroom. We see a shot of the ceiling fan whirring in the background. So right away, Sarah's starting to anchor Laura in a familiar world after her initially otherworldly appearance. When we see her corpse on the beach, it's like kind of this, she's very calm. She doesn't, she's very out of place, this plastic wrapped figure on the shore. But then with the Sarah scene, it's like, oh no, she was a normal teenager. She sleeps in, her mom calls down for her to go to school. You know, this was, uh, and that may, kind of makes it more poignant in a way, like it's more relatable in a sense. And then uh, the next scene with the Palmer family, we see Ben and Leland up there in the meeting and the concierge comes in and says, your wife is on the phone. So we see him right away being pulled out of this professional context and toward this family tragedy. Then in the very next scene, Leland's trying to comfort Sarah, says uh, Laura's probably with Bobby. Truman arrives, and Leland realizes right away what's happened. 
Um, you know, we don't even, he probably says it off screen, but we don't even need to see Truman say your daughter's dead. Like Leland is already getting it just from Truman's demeanor and Sarah panicking on the phone. So that's a pretty powerful juxtaposition of everything's calm, everything's normal. And then suddenly the bottom drops out of your universe right then and there. And we even see a shot of the phone tilting down with Sarah screaming at the top of her lungs. We cut back to the room. It's like uncomfortable to watch. And there's a funny interview years later where Grace Zabriskie, the actress who plays Sarah, Sarah, is talking with David Lynch. She says, you know, people thought that that scene was funny. And I told them, well, it has some comedy, but it's also a serious scene. But yes, uh, you know, I go a little over the top. And Lynch actually starts to get upset. He's like, no, it's not. There's nothing funny about it at all. And she goes, well, I was a little bit funny. He's like, no, it was not in the least bit funny. And he's like adamant about it, that he sees this purely as dramatic scene. Uh, So that was kind of funny to see them kind of go at it that way. In the next scene with the Palmer family, Truman takes Leland to see Laura's body in the morgue. And so now we're getting just that final confirmation we didn't really need, but sort of a formality. But it more just shows the grieving process for Leland that now he's seeing his daughter dead there. And uh, this again is, you know, it's introducing us to the Palmer family at the moment of its dissolution. So that's our our transition into this story is getting a very brief glimpse, very brief of the, the Palmer family's sort of normal routine and then how that's all shattered. Later, we see Sarah being sedated by Doc. Truman's asking her questions about when she last heard or saw Lara. And so here we have both that previous sort of norma- sense of normality and the current sense of ominous, ominousness. And, and sadness and grief haunting this household. Uh, we're seeing it both in the one scene because she's remembering how it all was, but it's not that way anymore. Upstairs, Hawk finds a diary and a video in Laura's room, takes them as pieces of evidence, and uh, Leland is kind of forlorn. He says, do you have to take that? Like he's watching his daughter's life be kind of dissembled before him as he sits there on the bed. So this is like a, uh, again, sort of a moment of the shock of the parents confronting the fact that their daughter isn't there anymore. She was there the night before and now she's gone. And it's like the, the, the horribleness of the, the fact that now they have to treat this in this formal way, you know, the never coming back. It's sinking in here. We go back to Truman questioning Sarah downstairs that somebody called Laura that night. There was a phone call. So they're starting to extract like practical, useful information from this this family trauma to a very limited extent. You know, the trauma aspect of it is still outweighing the sort of cold procedural part. And we see that the the cops are very gentle with the family. Um, They know, you know, they're... This is giving us a sense of this local community, too, and the Palmer family's face uh, place within this. And then finally, at the end of the episode, we finally return to the Palmer family after departing from them for a long, long time. As Sarah sits there kind of troubled, and she sees these images of the stairs and then leaps up with horror, which seems to be intercut with this uh, vision of something happening in the woods. But, you know, this is an interesting moment because now it's positioning the Palmer family themselves as somehow, um, I don't know if you'd call them detectives. We don't know exactly what's going on with her and this this imagery, but, you know, they're addressing the mystery too, or at least she is in this moment. It's not just that they're reeling from the death of their daughter. They're trying to figure something out. So the general takeaway from this subplot within the Laura story is her parents seem to be loving but clueless. They're upper middle class, a corporate lawyer, and as far as we know, a housewife. So there's just an overwhelming sense of normality that is being established here, even as their reactions are, well, at least Sarah's is very over the top. So not quite just normal, but there's like a, a feeling that this could happen to anybody type of thing. That's our overwhelming takeaway from this episode. Another aspect of the Laura story is Laura's relationship to Bobby. This is introduced when Sarah calls uh, Major and Mrs. Briggs, Bobby's parents, and finds out Bobby's at football practice. This phone call introduces us or starts to introduce us to the whole society. You know, we started with just the cops finding the body and then we introduced to the family. And now it's like spreading outward, like those ripples, like I said, seeing Laura's impact on the whole community. It's such a brilliantly structured driver into the community 
uh, her absence and the way that her absence is addressed by these different characters and places. Next, Sarah calls the coach, finds out Bobby's not at football practice. So we're getting a sense, okay, Bobby's a quarterback here. We're learning a little more about him without seeing him. And this is also cool because we're finding another absent character. Laura's gone. Where's Bobby? Is he dead too? Did something happen to him? Is Was there several murders the night before? And really it's uh, only the next, uh, the later scenes that, that actually tell us you know, no, Bobby's okay, and maybe he, uh, you know, maybe he had something to do with Laura's death. So the next scene that's really about, we, we see, it, Bobby is introduced in a scene that's much more about Shelley. When we get a sense of his relationship with Laura again, he's arriving at school, and Mike's telling him something's up. The uh, secretary or the vice principal uh, invites him into the, or calls him into the office, says, get in here right now. So now he's being, now he's starting to be set up as a suspect in Laura's death. Not just, not a possible witness, not a possible fellow victim, but actual possible suspect. And Hawk and Andy question Bobby. Truman tells him Laura's dead and he's arrested. Uh, he has a moment of what seems like genuine shock when they say that she's dead. What does that mean? Does that mean that he didn't even know she was harmed? Or does it mean maybe he did something and he's just shocked that it resulted in her death? Uh, that seems unlikely later because we see how intentional this murder was. But early in the episode, you know, we're not totally sure. Next up, we see Cooper and Truman showing the Laura and Donna picnic video to Bobby and his lawyer, asking him about who Jay is and uh, Coop writing on the calculator that uh, Bobby didn't do it. So here's the first time we're getting a real sense of what their relationship was like. You know, we already know that he's cheating on her. But uh, now we're seeing that, you know, he's got a jealous streak. He's looking at that video. It's clear that he doesn't know. He didn't know about that video. He wasn't involved with it. And uh, Cooper is drawing out of him, uh, hoping to sort of draw out of him a suspicion of who maybe did shoot that video. And Bobby seems to know. He seems to get a sense. I think he might see the motorcycle in the eye, too. Although we tend to think of that as like, a significant signifier of Cooper's brilliant detective work. It seems like Bobby's recognizing that too. You know, he says some freaking biker. That's, that's kind of the next scene where Bobby tells Mike about uh, the biker and uh, they seem to know exactly who that Jay is at this moment. At least they, they seem pretty sure Lucy listens in on that conversation and is typing. It's kind of a funny moment where Mike and Bobby are plotting something and then they look over and Lucy's typing and she stops and looks back at her. We see Major and Mrs. Briggs talking to a lawyer and trying to comfort Bobby as he's kind of es escorted out by them. And finally, when Joey drops Donna off uh, with James in the woods, James tells uh, Donna that Bobby killed somebody and uh, so and talks about the fact that Laura said this about Bobby. So we're getting a real sense they had a troubled relationship in some in some way or another. We didn't already have that sense. So all of the stuff about Laura's and Bobby's relationship is revealed sort of inferentially and indirectly throughout this episode. He doesn't have a scene where he just like, you know, launches exposition about what their relationship was like, but we just see it doesn't seem to be a healthy relationship. So seeing that they're mutually unfaithful, but he was the quarterback and she was the homecoming queen, so they sort of have a public image thing going. Uh, both of them, it seems, kind of using each other in that way. At least that's the implication so far. The relationship to James is uh, first alluded to when Donna sees Audrey and James in the hallway at the school, and James teases her, some, some says something about a picnic. And uh, I just note at this point, I don't know where else to mention it, there's a hilarious dancing kid in the background of this scene uh, when they all march off screen before the cops come through the frame. This kid is like combing his ducktail hairdo in the in the locker mirror, slams the locker shut and does a little like moonwalk kind of jazzy thing out of there, which is really funny. Next scene dealing with uh, Laura's relationship to James when the teacher gets the news about that Laura's dead. A girl runs screaming through the court and we see James snap a pencil he, like Donna, seems to realize right away, oh no, oh no, this is something. This has something to do with Laura. She's not there in her seat. When the principal announces Laura's death, we see James looking very sullen and sad in the classroom. Later, Hawk finds the diary and the video camera in Laura's room, uh, bedroom. This, of course, will lead to the discovery that there's a picnic video that James took that's going to connect them with uh, James for the first time. So really, this video is the clue 
that leads them uh, more or less to suspect that James had a relationship with her. And that is also also contributing to that realization is Cooper cracking open Laura's diary uh, when he's sitting there with Harry Truman in the sheriff's station saying, how do we open this diary? And he just, you know, we couldn't find the key and he just kind of rips it open. There you go. Now you solved it. And uh, in that diary, he finds the note about Jay, which is, you know, so far sort of pointing at least possibly to James. Uh, later, he when he's confronting, um, uh, after he confronts Bobby about the video, and Bobby's telling Mike about it, they know right away that, that James is involved with this. So they're now realizing the, the extent of the relationship there. When Cooper confronts Donna about the video, uh, she covers for James. And uh, it, it, so, you know, we're now getting a sense. Of course, if James shot this video... And, uh, you know, she is covering for it. She's somehow in on this information that Laura and James were a couple. And we already kind of got that sense from the hallway scene. But uh, most significant in this, of course, is Cooper pausing the video when Lucy comes in to tell him about the biker conversation. And he points to Laura's eye and we see that image of the motorcycle reflected in her eyeball. Pretty high def for a 1989 camera. Then we see the bike with James on a bluff overlooking uh, Twin Peaks, overlooking a valley, and uh, he's sitting there looking sad. That's the spot where they had the picnic, I believe. And then we see him again on that bluff holding the half-heart necklace in his hand. So it's just being reinforced constantly. This guy had a connection to Laura, was in a relationship to Laura, and he has some of the items that were, or a part of an item that was featured at the crime scene. How did that happen? Later, Donna drops Donna off with James in the woods. Um, or Joey drops Donna off. Joey, James' biker friend, drops her off. And they have the long conversation. And this is the moment where it fully comes out, the extent of their relationship, and that he was the last one who saw her that night. And they have a really intense discussion about it. He goes into detail about how distraught she was and everything like that. And, uh, you know, the, they decide to bury the necklace, Laura's necklace, because he feels like he shouldn't have it and he doesn't just want to throw it away. But if he keeps it and the cops arrest him, which he thinks they're going to do soon, um, because he doesn't have a great alibi for that night and they're probably on to the fact that he was with her, you know, he is now, he has to get rid of this necklace. So they bury it in the dirt. Cooper and Truman, they catch James, they arrest him, even though Donna's protesting. He didn't have anything to do with this, you know, and, uh, but they, they, he is now, it seems, a prime suspect, even though Cooper is pretty dismissive of it. Uh, they get to the sheriff's station, Truman releases Donna to dock, but uh, they're arresting James there. They, they want to uh, fill out, you know, the paperwork, put him in the cell. They put him in a cell next to Mike and Bobby, who end up barking at him and sort of threatening him from across the jail. So now everything's kind of come out into the open. Everybody knows about James's relationship to Laura. The cops know, and Mike and Bobby know. They've suspected it all episode, and now it's it's here in their face. So the takeaway from this subplot is their love, the love between James and Laura, so far, at least through James's eyes, seems to be more genuine than uh, the Bobby relationship. And he almost seems to know her more than anyone else. Certainly the last one to see her seems to know she was back on something. And, uh, you know, e- even more so than Donna, but she, but Laura still kept him at something of a distance. So we haven't gotten that close to her yet. Next up is Laura and Donna's friendship. Uh, this is starts to be introduced when the news is first received that Laura's dead. Donna knows right away it's her. She looks at the chair. She grabs her hand. And she starts to sob. And to me, that, even with all the stuff with the parents, this is the most powerful depiction of Laura's death. I think Laura Flynn Boyle, uh, the actress who plays Donna, just does a fantastic job here um, with that emotion. And the striking audio effect of that scream, and they turn their head sharply, and the girl's racing across the courtyard. Brilliant, brilliant moment. Um, that's, that's just a great way of capturing. And I think anybody who's been in a school when someone's death was announced, knows that sensation. I remember a kid died when I was in high school and they called an assembly 
and had everybody come in. And this kid had been sick for a couple of days, so everybody kind of knew what was coming. He gets up at the podium, and the principal says, this morning, pause, says the student's name. Oh, no, and there's this murmuring, and died of meningitis, and this girl shrieked like a whale. So this scene was like, I can totally remember something like this happening, you know, and I think anybody who's been in that situation, and I think for Lynch, a lot of it was the Kennedy assassination because uh, he writes about that in his, his uh, autobiography, which I'm reading now. He remembers a girl who was so distraught, this Catholic girl in the neighborhood, wailing and sobbing. He walked her home, crying the whole way home, and ran into her house and didn't come out for two days. So this is very much, you know, for any baby boomer, that's a seminal moment, the Kennedy assassination. A lot of them heard it in their school. I know my dad was at football practice, and his coach said, boys, boys, get take any boys, take your helmet off. And they're like, oh, my God, what is it? What happened? And he goes, the president's been killed. He's been shot. And it's just like, so, you know, this was a moment that impacted everyone. And I think that plays out in this, in this. It's like, the and of course, they wrote the goddess screenplay with the JFK conspiracy stuff tied into it. Lynch has always had a deep fascination with the JFK conspiracy stuff. Even though he says in his goddess thing, you know, I got sad that it was getting away from the Kennedy thing toward the girl who got murdered. He still does have an interest in, uh, or a girl who died in that case, although they suggest maybe she was murdered. But he still does have an interest in that, in that sort of shadowy conspiracy too. So I don't want to make it like that was all a frost thing. Anyways, back to the Laura Donna storyline. Later, we see Doc uh, Hayward telling Mrs. Hayward, um, Donna's mother, who's in a wheelchair, sort of a little more confined to the home. You know, it adds to the sense of domesticity in this scene. You know, they're in this sort of safe space. And he's talking about how uh, Donna has, or Donna was in the video with Laura where uh, she's, she's, you know, they don't know who took the video. So they're realizing their daughter's involved with this somehow. And then, of course, later Donna meets James the Woods. We've talked about that scene from several angles. And uh, the significant part as far as concerning Donna is she's learning things about Laura through this conversation. James is the one telling, she's the one hearing, and she sort of defensively says, I knew more about her than she knew, or than she thought I did, but, you know, there's still this sense that she wasn't totally clued in. And then finally, uh, the last scene relating to the Laura-Donna friendship is Doc Hayward giving Donna a talking to in the car, which turns into a very affectionate uh, kind of gesture, and he says, I'm so glad we have a daughter like you, which is sort of an implicit... um, A, a, a sort of an implicit judgment of Lara being involved in all these things, and they're just glad that Donna seems to be more innocent in their eyes. But there's this interesting dynamic there where Lara and Donna were best friends. So how much was she involved with Lara's world? How much was she not? What we're getting in this sense is, uh, in this subplot, is Donna's close but still not in the know. She's a good girl, uh, but she still gets in trouble with this uh, in this episode. She sneaks out. She's shown to have been uh, sort of had secrets because she was in this video with Laura. She lies to the police and she's, you know, out there kind of experimenting a little bit maybe with Laura. Did they drink together? Did they do any drugs together? You know, how much of Donna is a surface image as well? She seems like she's more hard on her sleeve, but, uh, you know, she was involved with Laura for years, apparently. What did that entail for her? Next up, we have the friendship between Laura and Renette, if it's indeed a friendship. We know they had some sort of professional connection because they're in the Flesh World magazine, uh, to, or at least she has the magazine in her safety deposit box, which has uh, Renette in it, suggesting that they were probably involved in something together, or at least she was interested in being involved with it. Now, to start with, uh, we learn about Renette when Andy comes into the room while Truman's questioning Sarah and he says they got news that another girl is missing, a mill worker's daughter. We go to the mill where uh, they shut down the mill for the day. And we see uh, Josie makes an announcement about the sadness of it. And we see Mr. Pulaski, Renette's father, exiting, weeping, held by somebody there. So now we're getting the sense that there's more here than just this dead girl, Laura Palmer. This is like some sort of dual crime where two people murdered. Then we see Renette crossing the bridge. We know she survived, but boy, has she been through something. And again, this leads us, so, you know, we know there was somehow, at this point, we know at least she was in the same place as Laura, or so it seems. 
We don't know why. We don't know if they really knew each other, if they were just both kidnapped that night. But the connection uh, will come later, of course. So Cooper and Truman go to see Renette in the hospital. Her condition is really bad. The doctor says she can't talk. She's borderline catatonic, and she's murmuring, don't go there, don't go there. A very Lynchian thing, speaking the unspoken. And uh, Cooper checks the fingernail, sees nothing under it. So at this point, the connection to Laura is still an enigma. Finally, somewhat resolved when they open the safety deposit box. There's her connection, they say, because Laura circled the picture of Renette in there pretty helpfully. Onward with uh, Laura's subplots, we have the therapy subplot. We learn that uh, she took the initiative to seek help, but the guy looks like a quack and kind of a creeper, so we don't know how much this actually, this this gesture paid off. So we find out about this when uh, Cooper and Truman are in an elevator. They're stuck with a one-armed man who gets off in front of them. It's just sort of a sight gag. Uh, the reason that's actually in there is because of the show The Fugitive, they wanted to make a reference to The Fugitive as um, you know, a popular TV show, ongoing mystery that they were sort of in the genre of in that sense. And uh, there's, of course, a famous one-armed man in that, in that story. But as he's getting off, they see Jacoby, who calls out to them, and he catches up with them downstairs and tells them that Laura was seeing him and it was a secret that she kept from her parents. And while he's saying all this, he's got this weird tie with a figure in a hula skirt, and he's like feeling under the hula skirt. So we're getting a sense he's kind of perverted. He wants to go to the morgue, and they're weirded out. He doesn't seem very sad about Laura's death. He's more just like tickled by the whole situation. So now we know that Laura was seeing this guy. That's not good news one way or another. So what does that mean in terms of her murder? Um, we don't know. But in terms of her personal life, confirmation that not only was she troubled, she knew she was having troubles and she wanted to do something about it. Uh, as far as the drug subplot goes within her life, we are getting the sense she's probably addicted. She's using cocaine or uh, at least, well, she's, she's, uh, she's got it in her diary in a little baggie. So it seems like it was personal, but also maybe some business as well, because, uh, you know, she's got it in her safety deposit box there. And also, it's worth noting, there's a similarity to an early Mark Frost episode of Hill Street Blues, where the cops go to a another cop safety deposit box and they pull out all this evidence, some sort of sexual stuff, some lingerie, and then also some drugs and some money. So it's like he repeated that whole hog for this, which is kind of funny. Later in the episode, when Donna is uh, with James in the woods, uh, Bob, I think James suggests that she was probably on something that night. So they knew about her drug problem thought maybe she was off it and then back on it again and uh, you know because because it's like she wasn't acting normal or something she says he says uh, she wasn't acting like herself or whatever and uh and donna donna getting this news we don't really know how she react we, we don't know yet how much she knew about laura's drugs issues if she was a part of it if she was totally unaware if she just kind of knew about it Another thing we learn about in this episode is Laura's connection to charity. Uh, she was some somewhat of a do-gooder because she visited Johnny, uh, the emotionally uh, handicapped or, or a sort of remote son of um, Ben Horn, Audrey's brother, who wears like an Indian headdress and is banging his head against a dollhouse. He was clearly attached to Laura, and he doesn't understand why she's not coming over today. And Johnny's mother just says, you know, she's never coming back again. It's just sort of this like, Somewhat absurd scene, but also solemn and showing, you know, they've shown a lot of like Laura's sort of um, seamier side of her life. And they're showing here too the the sort of the do-gooder aspect as well that was there, this division within her persona. We also learn about her connection to sex work. Uh, this magazine in the, uh, the deposit box, it's not like conventional pornography. It's like looking for hookups. It's got like listings in there and... So she's got that in there. Now, she seems, this is somehow connecting her to Renette, but how? Was she blackmailing Renette? Was she working with Renette? Was she interested in using Renette as like a client? Not entirely clear yet, but she was a minor. She was 17 years old. So to whatever extent she's involved in this world, it's uh, beyond just sort of being an illegal vice thing. It's also some sort of exploitation and trafficking. We learn about... Uh, 
some sort of implicit connection too with Laura and Leo through this magazine because there's a picture of his truck uh, that's that's featured right below the picture of Renette. And this is made clear when we dissolve from the photo with Leo standing in front of it to the house with the truck there. And, uh, you know, that's that's kind of uh, another little connection tease that we're getting in this pilot. What was Laura's connection to this, this scary dude? There are, no, of course, no uh, old Laura stories to talk about in this because this whole episode is introducing Laura Palmer in the first place. But in future episodes, we're going to go back and revisit these clues, these uh, story sections, and these subplots within the Laura story, as well as updating with new ones. The top storyline in the pilot is Laura's relationship to James, which gets a whopping 14 scenes. That's quite a bit. And uh, it's interesting that... The, and, and keep in mind, like one of the storylines that's in contention for this is her actual murder, like the circumstances of how she was killed and the crime scene and all of that. Even when you look at that, where this episode is so driven by the fact that she died, there is more attention given to her specific relationship to James than to the exact um, evidence and crime scene and everything around her death. So that's fascinating. That really underscores how this episode uh, in some ways, the narrative arc is really more about her close friends and their relationship to her than it is this broad criminal investigation. So that ends the second episode of this week devoted to the pilot. Tomorrow we'll have an episode on the subplots going scene by scene through all of the uh, parts of the episode that aren't directly connected to Laura, which there's still a fair amount of that in there. And we'll also discuss the opening of the episodes, the opening uh, credits, and how that uh, plays out in this pilot episode, as well as a little section I'm calling The Uncanny for now, just a sort of surreal, unexplainable moments. There's really only one or two in this particular episode. So I discuss that at the end of the next one. So see you there tomorrow. Tomorrow.